Welcome back, everybody, to the Drink and Learn podcast. I am drinks historian Elizabeth Pierce. And I am bartender Abigail Gallo, coming to you from the beautiful State Hotel in Seattle, Washington. And I'm coming to you from my beautiful office (laughs) (laughs) in New Orleans. With no air conditioning turned oh, on. Oh, good for you. Because it makes, because, no, because it makes noise. Oh. And that's why there's no air conditioning. Actually, it's still pleasant. But as I was getting set up, all I could think was, oh, pretty soon I'm going to be recording with Abigail in June and July <laughs> with no air conditioning so it doesn't make noise. Well, this podcast actually started with us in the pool together. So, oh, if only we could set up in the pool again, Elizabeth. (laughs) Oh, man, that would be awesome. Well, maybe I could set up like a kiddie pool and just put my feet in it. I'll set one up on my lanai as well and join you once the weather turns here. It's still definitely spring here. Yesterday was, or two days ago, was like the perfect date. You know, not too hot, not too cold. All you needed to wear was a light Mm -hmm. jacket. It was lovely. Then it got a little chilly again, but I forgot how Jacket. long seasons are. Like, I'm like, yes. wow, it's been spring like forever because it's lasted, no. you know, more than three days. <laughs> yeah, we don't have that. Uh, it's, well, it's the festival. Uh, festival season. It's the first weekend of Jazz Fest. It was also Festival International in Lafayette, which is where I was. And in the middle of the day, it was definitely tank top weather and not jacket yeah. weather. No, I'm not here yet. Yeah. Um, All right. So today is patriotic day. It is. I'm feeling so patriotic. Right. Because we're talking about American whiskey. If you had to pick, I mean, maybe this could be a question for the end, but like, why not start with the beginning? Why not start it off? If you had to pick only one, is that a terrible question? Only one whiskey? Only one, yeah, only one um, American whiskey on your desert island. Yeah, like style, like rye or brand. I don't know. Well, you know me. I'm um, a rye I guess girl. you could call a brand. I love rye whiskey. Right. It's always been my favorite. That's your handle. It's my handle. What's rye yeah, girl? Rye girl on 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 Twitter. Yeah, uh, no, on Facebook. What you have? Rye girl. Facebook. Yeah, and rye girl. Yeah. I think if you Google rye girl, you still get my blog, which I started like that's what twelve it was. years ago, and have not been really good about keeping it up. It's just a blog spot, but it's still there. And if you go there, you could actually see watch my <laughs> my transformation from just a school teacher who came home and mixed some booze together to an actual bartender who started measuring things and writing things down and doing historical research. So. You can see like the evolution of Abigail from enthusiast to professional, um, sort of on that. But uh, yeah, no, and I started it because rye whiskey kind of was my favorite, and it was really hard to find. It's really kind of spicy, and um, and I liked the historic historical elements of it. I love how it was in so many cocktails, and um, it seemed to go really well with all of these classic, new classic cocktails I was discovering. So I really, I like rye. And then, of course, you know I love Willet so much, Willet whiskey. And they started making their own rye about six, seven years ago. So they're putting out Mm -hmm. some really nice two- and three-year-old rye. Rye um, doesn't have to get too old I don't like older rye. Mm-hmm. I like younger rye. <laughs> I like my rye like I like my men a little bit on the younger side, you know? <laughs> and spicy. And spicy. Um, yes. I think I would pick Booker's. Mm. That's sort of my um, – uh, it's just, it's very 
Oh, well, not overproof, but it's high proof. Mm-hmm. Would that be called overproof? Mm, that's no, mm, I think no, overproof is a specific designation. It's high proof. Yeah, uh, because then you can dilute it if you need mm-hmm. to, or you can just have it as is. But I really, I tend to like my old fashions with pretty high proof, um, high proof whiskey. So I like that's that's the that's what I call in a bar when I don't know. Like if I see they have yeah. it, then I'll just call. You're that. a mighty woman with you like yes. you like powerful whiskey because you are a powerful woman. I like it. <sighs> Although I started on Jack Daniels because mm-hmm. that was my mother's whiskey. Mm-hmm. In fact, when we went, um, uh, we drove around looking at different colleges when I was in high school, and my mother. I was not interested in going to Vanderbilt, and yet somehow we ended up there because we were able to then make a detour to the Jack Daniels Distillery. Oh, and I was like, "Well, isn't this handy?" She's. It was kind of like, "Well, you're already in Tennessee," <laughs> and I, I don't think they're like particularly near each other. No, no, the Jack Daniels Distillery is in the middle of nowhere. I tried to go there once, yeah. and I was like, "Nah, this is too far out of the way. I'm not going to make it." <laughs> yeah. Well, my mother made the pilgrimage well, she, to she, her she, mecca. She has to. That's her. That's her mecca. Yeah. Yeah. I was my first whiskey that I was introduced to. My parents were not drinkers, so I got introduced to Wild Turkey through the character of Thelma in Thelma and Louise. Hmm. She ordered a margarita and a Wild Turkey back, and I was like, "That's going to be my order." So that like became my order in college was doing whenever somebody says, "Let's do a shot," I'd be like, "Wild Turkey, please." <laughs> Did anybody recognize? Oh, you didn't do them together. No. The uh, margarita well, Walter. One time back. I did, I think. Did anybody, did the bartender recognize the Order? reference? No. Not a lot of bartenders oh, wow. were into... Um, Thelma and Louise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Feminist <laughs> independent films of the 90s, no. Oh, but I was just thinking it's appropriate that uh, rye was is your... Uh, is your whiskey for uh, for NYC baby because that's the first that's really the first American whiskey. It is. It is. It's what George Washington made. It's when Thomas Jefferson made. It's the grain. And so for for we'll do the super super duper overview mm-hmm. so that people can um, sound smart at a party mm-hmm. and jump in with anything that you know. We're not going super deep, yes. but just to orient people. Yes. Um, and then we can talk about the cool stuff that we just that we happen to mm. like. I'll, I'll be very excited when we get to prohibition. <laughs> if you go back and listen to the old world episode on whiskey, you will know that some of the folks who left Scotland and actually uh, this term Scots Irish are people who left Scotland and moved to Northern Ireland because they were Protestants and then eventually left Northern Ireland and came to the U.S. So that is what that means. It is not an amalgamation of people who were from Scotland and people who are from Ireland and then they all got on a boat together. It's a particular... um, Hmm, I did not know that. Scots Irish, specifically people from Northern Ireland. From Northern Ireland, the Ulsters. And they came over and they already knew how to make whiskey and they already didn't like to pay taxes on it if, if, if it could be helped. Yes. And so they were making it with barley, but they, uh, they brought barley over here, but it didn't flourish. Mm-hmm. Um, soil was kind of different, but rye did. And so the first whiskey that's being made is made from rye. And the way that it's integrated in the, the culture of the time is 
it's used as currency. There are records, people like paying their preacher in rye mm-hmm. and paying teachers and librarians. Well, maybe not librarians. Not a lot of librarians <laughs> on the frontier, but you know what I mean. So people got paid in it. And it was also a way to convert something that could spoil grain into something that couldn't spoil Absolutely. distilled spirit. Absolutely. Took up a lot less room as well. If you're going to haul something to the market, you could distill all of this excess grain into just a couple barrels of whiskey as opposed to taking three cartloads of grain. Exactly. And eventually, those people begin to move westward, settling in western Pennsylvania and Maryland. And it becomes even more important because you have to get over the Allegheny Mountains with your mule Mm -hmm. and so uh, all the grain is getting converted. And the Western Pennsylvania part of the story is important because so, – so leading up to the American Re- Revolution, the commercial product was rum, which we will talk about in another episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but whiskey is kind of just for like home use or it's a way for you to, you know, use up your grain. So everybody's making their local spirit. Yeah, keep in mind, this is the colonial era. Rye whiskey is there, but – Really, you're right. Rum is more prevalent. And, of course, apple brandy is very prevalent as well. Right, right, which we talked about in brandy. So after the American Revolution, we're broke. And Alexander Hamilton says, we need to pay France back for all the help that they gave us in the war. And so um, he starts a bank. Um, which there's probably a song about. I have not been. I have not listened to the yes. Hamilton soundtrack because I want to be. I want to experience it unfamiliar. Like I want to just walk in and know what this like. Know what that feels like to not know ahead of time. So I was guessing there's probably a song about a bank. Um, but he also decides to tax liquor. Now, to his credit, he taxes imports on a higher percentage than he does local. But Alexander Hamilton was kind of dumb about this choice because he taxes it at the still. Well, nobody had cash then because we just said whiskey is currency. And so all the um, whiskey distillers get mad and they have a thing that we – uh, where so, you should have learned about in your American history class called the Whiskey Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And I would like everybody out there, raise your hand. Did you spend like a good afternoon on the Whiskey Rebellion? Yes. I didn't. Oh, no. I, we totally did. I totally remember the Whiskey Rebellion from high school. Yeah, it was huge, which is why I love, and I'm not giving anything away in the line of the, there is a line from Hamilton. You can say a okay. line. Okay, a line. It says, uh, stand with me. This is uh, Thomas Jefferson speaking. Stand with me mm-hmm. in the land of the free and pray to God we never see Hamilton's candidacy. Look what when Britain taxed our tea, we got frisky. Imagine what gonna happen when you try to tax our whiskey. Well, it doesn't work out. <laughs> and there's a rebellion and George Washington sends in the troops and it was a big deal because the troops mustered uh, against their fellow Americans yes. to put down this rebellion. And if anybody uh, has the opportunity to go to Pittsburgh and you visit the Heinz Museum, which is the Museum of Pittsburgh, the whole story of Pittsburgh. You're going to have to look real hard for a very small paragraph about the Whiskey Rebellion. That's on like one wall, like column in a corner. It isn't like there's no 
special lighting. There's no reenactment. There's no anything. And I, and then you go further along and you get into the Pittsburgh Steeler room with like holograms <laughs> and like multimedia. There was some famous catch that happens that you get to watch over and over <laughs> on, you know, the video. And I am like shaking my fist. I can't believe this Pittsburgh is really important whiskey rebellion and it's why the Steelers get all this room this room and this love and Lee's like, Are you kidding me? Are you really asking this question, Elizabeth? And so whenever I have people on my tour from Pins- from Pittsburgh, I tell them to write a letter to the Heinz Museum <laughs> that the Whiskey Rebellion means better coverage. <laughs> and I have not been updated. <laughs> Uh, anybody out there, if you have any Pittsburgh, any Pittsburgh anyone in Pittsburgh, please continue our fight to get the Heinz Museum to recognize the Whiskey Rebellion and its importance in the history of Pittsburgh. Thank you very much. Uh, and America. Amer- this America. is America. So American. This is so American. It's all the football. I mean, football brings ha- brings a lot of people happiness, regardless of all of the other uh, challenging things that swirl around it. However, I don't whiskey begrudge. brings I don't, a lot of happiness. Whiskey as well. also brings happiness. Yes. So, a lot of the folks um, uh, begin to leave uh, Western Pennsylvania and they move into Kentucky. Now, people were already in Kentucky, mm-hmm. which Kentucky um, at this you know, time Kentucky had been, is known as is is actually. Um, Western Virginia. Virginia stretches Virginia, at this point right. pretty much all the way to the Mississippi. Yeah. So people were already in Kentucky, and they were already making whiskey. They were called the Cane Tucks. But Washington didn't send the troops there because it was um, it was like farther, and the ground was you know it, the terrain was, would yeah, have been rough. more difficult. It's, it was and also they weren't a state yet. Kentucky was not, uh, and uh, they were being courted by Spain mm. um, to join them and like be part of Spain instead of being part of the United States. So Washington didn't want to piss them off. And so anyway, after the rebellion, when the uh, the whiskey makers in Pennsylvania say, okay, okay, we'll pay the tax, um, a lot of them leave and they go to Kentucky. And when they're in Kentucky, they discover that the grain that grows really best there is corn mm-hmm. and corn corn liquor corn whiskey tastes different than rye whiskey it does it does it it's corn whiskey at first um i think the nose has a lot more funk um if you're tasting it like a, in a white whiskey yes way way more kind of moldy funk from the corn um when it hits that barrel it pulls out so much more caramel and becomes super sweet in short when people ask me like what's the difference between rye and whiskey bourbon a lot of times i just say the corn just makes it more sweet and the rye makes it more spicy so this is a good time i think now that we've we're kind of in the middle of or or whether we move from one to the other is to talk about um the current definitions of what makes rye whiskey, Amer- American rye whiskey, rye whiskey, mm-hmm. and then what makes bourbon bourbon, and then there's a, there's also Tennessee whiskey, mm. and I think those are the categories that are that have requirements. That right, um, because then there's like corn, because like I was I wanted to mention mellow corn, but mellow corn and like moonshine and all those sort of fall out of the kind of 
like government government I think they're called corn corn whiskey. There's there is a US, you know, code of, of federal regulations and and it is very 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 um recent. I mean all of this I think is probably mm-hmm. post prohibition, correct? Yes. When we're talking about whiskey before prohibition, it was all just called whiskey. Um they did they did call certain things bourbon or Tennessee whiskey or rye, rye whiskey, mm-hmm. but they didn't have to call it anything but whiskey. There was no federal regulation. Um, that happens much later. And when it does, yeah, we have a rye whiskey, um, rye malted whiskey, malt whiskey, wheat whiskey, bourbon whiskey, and corn whiskey. And um, and those are just key types, and they're kind of divided by grain. Mm-hmm. So right now, rye has to have at least 51% um, 51% rye. That is kind of the magic number, 51% rye for any of these. Except for corn whiskey, um, the mash has to be at least 80% corn, if you're calling it corn whiskey. Oh, okay. Which is different than bourbon, which has to be at least, again, 51% corn. 51%. And bourbon has other requirements that it's aged in newly charred American oak, Mm -hmm. and it has to be aged for... Four years, two years. I think it's um, three years, and they have a three. they have a um, uh, yeah. I think it's just three years. Um, the legal requirements for uh, bourbon um, for U.S. consumption is that it must be produced in the United States, must be at least fifty one percent corn, aged in new charred oak containers. It must be distilled to no more than one hundred and sixty proof. Uh, it must enter into the container for aging at no more than 125 proof. And it's um, it can be bottled at 80 proof or more, but not less. So there is no minimum specified duration oh. for its aging period, actually. Yeah, so... That's interesting. Yeah. I thought that. Well, we both did. We both thought that there was a minimum. Yeah. The exception is if it's called straight bourbon, and then it's a minimum age requirement of two years. And hmm. any bourbon aged less than four years must include an age statement on its label. So maybe that's why you don't really see that. Yeah. Because, so if you don't see an age statement, then... It's less than four well, years. Well, unless it's, or or it's, then it's a lot more and then they tell you that they did it for seven or eight yeah. years or something. Yeah. But yeah, even, I mean, even... So that's where I got the four. Even if it's like, if it says um, six years, it can be blended, so... It's just like it's that's the age of the youngest whiskey in the bottle, right? And that's pretty much that's a that's a thing with Scotch too, I think. So, and then bottled in bond is different too, right? We're getting to Sorry. that. So, people move to Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Kentucky does not join Spain. Um, instead, they become a state. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, and because Louisiana was part of Spain, like that's it was why part of Spain. they yeah. they they wanted the port. Yeah. Yeah, it was all about the Mississippi River. It was all about the river. That's why Kentucky and Kentucky also they felt that the you know, the US government was in the east, was on the co- east coast. This is still conversations we have today and that the east coast really didn't give a shit about people out on the frontier yes. in the middle, yep. although it wasn't the middle, it was the end, it was the furthest west. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of their traffic was French. French and Spanish. And Spanish. They're uh, all of their, you know, it was along the river. Anyway, so they become, they're like, okay, we're not going to be Spanish. We'll be American. And then as a result of Louisiana Purchase, they continue to to do what they had been doing, except now a lot more, which is sending their goods down the Mississippi River. And this is where uh, I read a really interesting article by uh, Gary Reagan 
Regan? Reagan? Gaz. Yeah. Gaz Regan. Um, so I read this really interesting article by um, Gary Regan, also known as Gaz, uh, about American, American whiskey history. And, um, you know, he kind of points out you don't age a thing if you're just going to like, like use it as this currency or commodity. If you're just making a, a couple of barrels of whiskey on your little farm, mm. um, to age a thing is to maintain inventory. And it's basically to sit on money. But in in making your whiskey, you'd make it like in the late fall after you harvest your crops. Mm -hmm. And then you'd have to sit and wait for the rivers to rise high enough in the spring to be able to float your barge down the Ohio River and then catch up with the Mississippi and then make your way all the way down to, to New Orleans. And so... In the act of transporting, of waiting to to transport and then transporting your whiskey, it begins to age. Mm-hmm. It, it takes not quite a year, but by then, um, you are of course sampling your product along the journey, and people began to realize how much better it was mm-hmm. and that it would be worth it. I mean, it wasn't like people didn't know that the barrel would add flavor and color because we've known that about barrels. People have been aging brandy and barrels for a really long time. But it was when it became commercially relevant and useful. It was enough for someone to be like, okay, I am going to wear, or maybe I'll even keep a couple of barrels back in Kentucky for another year mm-hmm. and then come on. And then, you know, then it's two years. And then that is when you begin to see like 18, 20s, 30s, 40s, the emergence of names and the emergence of bourbon as this place, and it was a place, Bourbon County, that has really good whiskey. So that's where the barrel stuff comes well, from. And the flavor. I, I, I like the story. I think it's so much more romantic that it's named for Bourbon Street. But it isn't. <laughs> you have definitive Who says proof that? of this. Well, no, it's it's more that I disagree with his... Okay, so it's Mike Veach. Yeah. So he says that it was named Bourbon... Because it was rolled down the streets of Bourbon Street. Well, he said the same thing you said, that it was it was sent down and it was sold to New Orleans and all the bars at the time were on Bourbon Street and they called it Bourbon Street Liquor. But they weren't. They weren't on Bourbon Street. Richard Campanella's book, mm-hmm. Bourbon Street, yes. A Geography, mm-hmm. um, illustrates the fact that if it was going to be called anything, it would have been called Gallatin or Decatur. Because that's where all the bars were. That's where all the bars were along the river. Bourbon Street was four blocks off the river. Yeah. And at the time, it was not a commercial. I mean, sorry, it was commercial, but it wasn't this like, woohoo, Bourbon Street, yeah, um, kind of place. It was like banks and shit were there. Um, Bourbon Street does not emerge as an entertainment district until after World War II. Okay. All right. Well, then that seals the deal. Yeah. I kind of want to write a letter to... Richard Campanella and be like, you need to write a letter to Mike Beach. I think he does because, yeah, that does that does make – all right, now I believe you. Now I believe you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're all named for the same family, Bourbon, yeah. the Bourbon family. Um, so if he, you know, if he had said that it's named for this for that, but it's not named for Bourbon Street yeah. anyway. The, the French have their fingerprints all over this nation. They do. Yeah. Um, but Gary also says that he kept he keeps referencing that it came from Bourbon County, mm-hmm. and in the same way, and also when rye was coming down, it was it was often labeled 
Monongahela, because that's one of the rivers that goes, goes through Pennsylvania. Monongahela. Monongahela? Oh yeah. Okay. So it was named Monongahela. It wasn't called Rye. Mm. It was called Monongahela or Gehila to show that that's where it was from. Oh, that's really cool. And the bourbon was to show where it was from. We don't get into names until later. And it's the same thing with scotch. It's so important when you're thinking about the history of America during this time period. You must not think of land masses. You must think of waterways. You must think of our ports and our rivers. And these, it was these bloodlines that helped America grow and that shaped America. Do not think of land. Think of the water. I love that. Yes, and people really people really don't. And the reason I know this is because many years ago when I graduated from LSU, um, I got a job at the Hilton here in New Orleans, which is located along the Mississippi River. Mm. And people would check in and I would say, oh, because sometimes we'd assign rooms ahead of time or, you know, it's like sometimes people ask, you know, can I have a view? And I would say, you have a river view. And I cannot tell you how many people, but it was a lot, who would say, there's a river? Oh, my goodness. And I would say, the Mississippi. Perhaps you've heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> like, Huckleberry Finn? Did you have to read that? You know, like... It's only like the most important waterway <laughs> in the United and States. And I don't want to be like snobby, you know, intellectually like, whoa, you're so dumb. But I mean, come on, people. <laughs> it's like there are some big ones in the world and we have one of them mm-hmm. for sure. We do. Yeah. Amazon, Nile, Mississippi. Mekong. Yeah. 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 Anyway, it comes down the river and everybody starts to like it and people begin – began asking for it as a thing, acquiring a taste for this uh, corn-based whiskey versus the rye-based mm-hmm. whiskey. Another term that emerges, which I thought was really interesting, was they called it red liquor hmm. because um, time in the barrel gives it uh, a, a reddish, relatively speaking, a kind of reddish color. So then you have the Civil War and everybody – Uh, is trying to get whatever whiskey they can. But there's not a lot of whiskey that's being produced because unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, because you need grain to make whiskey. And if there's a war, people need to eat. So the there are various prohibitions that are made by both the North and the South against making whiskey or making liquor of any kind. But of course, lots of people ignore that because if something's prohibited, then it means that you can make a lot of money if you have it. But because of the Civil War and the way that people are making whiskey, like on the sly or with whatever they've got, it becomes even an even less reliable product. Mm-hmm. And the emergence of finally being able to sell things in a bottle, like have a bottle be cheap enough, mm-hmm. means that you have people that are blending like putting things putting whiskey in a bottle and you don't really know what you get no No, yeah also keep in mind before before this time period people are just buying like a bar would buy a barrel of whiskey and have like one bottle that they would just refill from the um from the barrel and so you always knew what you were getting because it was it was all single barrel whiskey which is now you know very fancy and but back then, that's all it was. But then as soon as you invent bottles, all of a sudden, you could put whatever in that bottle. Uh, so this this term is called rectifying. Mm-hmm. And there are people who would mix. Well, you can imagine. There are people who would blend maybe from several barrels to get a particular 
a flavor profile that they liked, you know, and these were people that you could trust who were making a good product. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, there were assholes who were, um, oh, shoot, I'm not supposed to curse. So I just remembered (laughs) that um, Mark Bologna, who has a really great podcast called Beyond Bourbon Street that Abigail and I have been on, um, he thanked me. He said that we don't really curse very much. And so he listens to our podcast in the car with his young daughters, oh. who I think are I hope you're going to bleep eight. that out then. They're seven or eight. I love his no, daughters. Gonna... They're twins. Yes, yeah. I know. Um, and so, sorry, Mark. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave it in because it's funny now. But we want, But he said you don't do it very much. No. And um, Even after we've been drinking. So anyway, they would mix. They would take like... Oh, there were recipes too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like take twenty percent real whiskey mm-hmm. <laughs> and then eighty percent like grain alcohol, and then there were like flavorings. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it was terrible. There were things were terrible, and they tasted terrible, or they might have been mixed with things that weren't very good for you. And so then that leads to the creation of this thing called the Bottle and Bond Act. Abigail, yes, the Bottled and Bond Act happens in. 18- 1997, and it is in reaction to um, all of the awful whiskey being made. Um, This is like continuous in America. It has to get really, really bad before we do something about it. Let's do something about it earlier. Can we? Can we please next time? To be bottled and bond, (laughs) the liquor must be the product of one distillation season, January to June or July to December, by one Mm -hmm. distiller at one distillery and it must be aged in a federally bonded warehouse under u.s government supervision for at least four years so you know it's been aged four years you know that the government has got its cronies looking at it and making sure it's okay and you know it's only one distiller and one season and the proof must be 100 so 50 percent alcohol by volume and the bottled product label must identify the distillery where it was distilled and if it's different where it was bottled and this only applies to spirits made in the united states so it's a little considered a little archaic now but some people still look at it as symbol of quality you do definitely have to jump through some hoops to get it labeled bottled and bond so you know that they're doing some work at least to making sure, assuring that it's a good product. You know that it's at least four years old. You know it's coming in at that proof. You know it's one distiller. And if it's not, like there's a lot of controversy right now with um, different distilleries making um, whiskey and then selling it to other people to bottle. So if they wanted Mm -hmm. to do a bottled and bond, they would have to say, yes, this was made at this distillery, but it was bottled here at this location. And the other thing that is kind of interesting that is happening around this um, this movement of of government saying like we need to get in front of this and uh, make sure that what we're what is being sold to people is you know of quality or is not a lie mm-hmm. is dovetailing with the growing temperance movement 1880s 1890s in the United States. Yes. You had um, people who were very reasonably bringing up the fact that alcohol consumption in the United States was like super duper high. Uh, Right now, the average American adult consumes two and a half gallons of uh, alcohol a year. Leading up to prohibition, Americans were drinking anywhere from like five to six times the amount of liquor 
that Americans drink now. That's a lot. It was it it was a lot. It's a lot of self medication, and that's a lot of bad booze, like poorly made. Right. And when booze is poorly made, it it's poison, and it makes you sick, and it's really bad. It's bad news bears all around. And so people began complaining and protesting against this and against saloons and without like there will be a whole another episode on like or probably possibly more than one about prohibition and and how did people ask me on the tour a lot of times like how did prohibition happen and um and there are lots of factors but one of them is that men would go to saloons often immigrant men or because it was all men going to saloons who were in you know like not even blue collar, but poor people, poorer people who would get paid on Saturday and then drink all their wages and, you know, not spend it on their families and not take care of their families. And so there was this anti-saloon league, but then lots of other things get wrapped into prohibition. But what comes out of it is rather than looking at all the troubles that made people drink, which as you point out was self-medication, Rather than fixing the like lack of workers' comp or health insurance or I live in a shitty tenement with like ten other people in one room, or you know, they just blame the saloons and they blame the alcohol and you eventually have prohibition. And this is where we introduce Canadian whiskey. Yay. That's where Canadian whiskey comes to our story. Yeah. And uh, Canadian whiskey is going to get a little short shrift here, and I'm really sorry, um, but I actually have plans to interview a Canadian whiskey expert oh my um, who will do an even better job I'm than so Abigail and I. Can, we will be able to talk to you about what we, what Canadian whiskey you like, mm-hmm. but what's key in this is Canadian whiskey's path follows a similar one for American whiskey because you know it's settled, colonial farming, people making whiskey sort of on their own, and then eventually distilleries begin to open. But but there's not huge distribution, and it's kind of like how American whiskey was in the earlier days. And there was a prohibition movement there, but they didn't make the whiskey people quit making whiskey. Mm. They just couldn't sell it in Canada. Mm. So they had to export it. Really? So... America is like, we're going dry. And Samuel Bronfman, B-R-O-N-F-M-A-N, he is like the Canadian whiskey guy. He will eventually own own Seagrams. Oh, yeah. Um, And he sets up shop in Windsor, also in Montreal, gets hooked up with Al Capone. What? Later denies all of this. Uh, because he, you know, he's like goes legit. Yeah. But um, what I thought was really funny, Abigail, is all you have to do is say that you are exporting, right? Yeah. Doesn't you're not selling in Canada? Then the U.S. government eventually kind of strong armed Canada and was like, you can't let people say that they're selling in the United States because we don't accept it. Yeah. And Canada's like, okay. But they could say that they were selling their whiskey to Cuba. And so they're in Windsor, Ontario, which is across the river from Detroit. Right across the river. Yeah. Okay. And you could be a Canadian, some Canadian guy with a rowboat (laughs) and like 12 cases of whiskey. 
And on your manifest, you would tell the Canadian official why, yes, I am heading to Cuba. (laughs) (laughs) To export this whiskey. And you would pay your taxes because that's all a Canadian official cared about. (laughs) And then he would say, bon voyage. (laughs) Well, yeah. Or he'd say, (laughs) bye-bye. Yeah. And that is when Canadian whiskey production really takes off during Prohibition. prohibition in the United States. Very clever. And that is when Americans develop a real taste for Canadian whiskey. Boy, and I think this ever. is a good this is a good time. Um because I'll tell you, I don't really drink Canadian whiskey, mm-hmm. but it is in your bar and it is in your wheelhouse. And um can you t- talk a little bit about that? Well a Canadian whiskey, I I gotta tell you, when I, I went I was when I first started in the industry, I was doing a little bit of sales work and I went out to Long Island with this sales guy, like old timer, like super thick tan, beautiful, beautiful, perfectly carved salt and pepper hair, you know, the gold chains, everything. And we walked into a store and there was a whole display in front of like Seagram's VO. And he's like, mm-hmm. oh, he shook his head and he's like, you see that? What a waste. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, because everything, everyone who drinks that is either dead or dying. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, (laughs) and so what he was saying was like, this is what old people drink. The people who have, these are probably the people like my grandfather's generation who after, yeah, who, who, who during prohibition got a taste for this Canadian whiskey and then just continue to drink it. And then, you know, pass that on to his sons, my uncles and stuff like that. Um, That being said, that was Long Island. When I moved down south to New Orleans, I was shocked when I got my first night bartending at Commander's Palace, and they had Crown Royal in the well. And I was like, who drinks this? And I made that joke. I'm like, only the dead and the dying drink this. And I realized, not in the south, everybody drinks it. I was so yes, surprised. People, people drink what their dads drink. Their- Lee has talked about all of his cousins, they all drink Crown because that is what their dad drank, mm-hmm. and their dad drinks it because, because that is what their, his dad their, drank. their grandfather, yeah. yeah, his dad drank. Yeah. Yes, that's that's the, the, uh, really a difference in tradition because you know where I come from in the north, we we rebel, we rebel against our parents. I was rebelling against my parents who didn't drink when I decided to start drinking what my grandfather drank. And that's what started right. like the whole kind of craft cocktail movement in New York. We were rebelling our parents who were like more into wine and craft beer. And we were like, no, we don't want to do that. We want to drink Manhattans and old fashions. But you should talk a little bit about what is that flavor. And because that's this is going to matter later. That flavor is because I ask a lot of guests about it. What do you like about that whiskey? Because I'll, I carried like Crown Royal Rye and I had some guests who'd be like, no, even though they mix it with like Coke, they're like, it's disgusting. I don't like it. And I'm like, well, what is it? What is it about the flavor of that Canadian whiskey that you'd like? And they like, they always say it's smooth. And to my mm-hmm. palate, it, yes, it's very smooth. It's also very sweet. 
Uh, it's smooth and sweet. And I know like sometimes they call it rye. Canadian rye isn't rye. Canadian rye doesn't have to have any rye in it. There's like a sprinkling of rye grain in the mash. To me, it is just mm-hmm. super, super, super sweet. A lot of caramel color, I think, added to it in a lot of spirits. I mean, there's obviously there's some really good Canadian whiskeys too. But I'm talking mm-hmm. about like the big brands that I see selling the most. Everyone says they like the taste because it's smooth. So I think... The kind of that that prohibition era whiskey, they probably kind of smoothed it out, evened it out, blended it out till it was like super palatable to the masses to be the most popular kind of flavor for our palates. And that flavor profile remains after prohibition when American distillers who have not been legally making whiskey, well, I mean, not very many of them, they respond and they are making kind of uh, their own sort of blended whiskeys as well. Yes. They they, they want to give the people, you know, what they want. And that is the preferred American whiskey really in t- until the like late 80 mid to late 80s. Mm-hmm. And that is when like American whiskey is almost going extinct. They had to do something different. Because they were losing their relevance. In the 1980s and 90s is when American rye whiskey, in particular, almost went extinct. They almost stopped making it. Um, whiskey mm-hmm. is not being drunk. Um, there are whole distilleries that shut down um, because they're betting on vodka still being the most popular spirit. And I think because they have kind of overblended and oversaturated their product, it had become irrelevant and just bland. And there was nothing to stand any of these whiskeys apart. And so I think that that's when they start experimenting. Like in the 60s and 70s, you see a lot of experimenting with them putting um, whiskey in ceramic, you know, souvenir state flasks you see them and i see them all the time in thrift stores i always pick them up whenever i see them because they're so great they weren't great to keep whiskey in but they were just doing anything to sell this whiskey and some of them the whiskey is still intact and it's really really good whiskey i've actually tasted mm-hmm. pre-prohibition whiskey and it tastes very very different very very different than what we drink now how is it different it tastes like tractor tire you know it's got a lot of like tinny high notes in it it isn't that kind of thick rich sweetness that we're kind of used to now and those big Uh kind of flavor bombs it was really Mm -hmm. kind of a little lighter and uh i found it really fascinating and really really delicious and yeah like Mm. that little hint of tractor tire i really liked (laughs) <laughs> that oily, oily that oily thing that's that's like in the Ardbeg um like Ardbeg is a, is a scotch that we we talked about last week. Yes. Um it has that kind of like briny, briny oily cra- character. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, it was really really cool. Uh I had Jimmy Jimmy Russell, the master distiller from Wild Turkey, he told me he said American rye whiskey would have gone extinct in the 1980s and 90s if it wasn't for the good people of New Orleans drinking their Sazerac. So this, that's why New Orleans and the Sazerac is so important to rye whiskey. It kept it alive at a time when it almost died out completely. Well, and all of them in a way were dying. They were. Because... Rye whiskey was the closest to coming extinct. But yes, they all almost died out. That's very true. Yeah, because because of vodka. But we can actually thank Scotch for the resurgence of nice American whiskey and people being willing to pay for it Mm -hmm. um, because Scotch becomes... Um, I always think of um, oh, what's the Michael Douglas movie? Greed is good. 
um, Wall Street, the 1980s Wall Street. Yeah. So when single malt scotch mm-hmm. emerges as this um, symbol of wealth, and it's a class marker. As you you are a member of the elite, you can afford to pay for this really fancy, you know, this like very masculine, you know, and the decanter that's in the office. Not like Mad Men. It's not. It's a different kind yeah. of show showing off drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, that prior to that might have been buying the most expensive bottle of wine or having like knowledge of wine, but that's different. Like that's at a restaurant. You're not going to have that in your office. Mm-hmm. So you really you see Scotch, beca- single malt Scotch, expensive Scotch becoming this thing but what it also primes the pump for is people having uh, expanding their palates for something that is less smooth right less sweet less this blended whiskey flavor Mm -hmm. right or at least this is the assertion that gary regan makes in his uh article and book about american whiskey which i thought was an interesting one and i felt like had some legs oh yeah oh yeah there's there's so much interesting history um, surrounding whiskey in these great United States. Um, no, but, but, the, but I mean, particularly like in the last 30 years, oh, yeah. like to move from a thing, to move from a both a flavor that people don't want and the money that people don't want to spend on it to becoming this, when I toured distilleries, you have the the bourbon enthusiasts and there's clubs and there's blogs and there's websites and there's, you know, like, oh, I know all about the blah, 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 blah mash bill and, you know, what this whiskey's using and, uh, you know, what their juice is or where they get, like, all of this knowledge yeah. and uh, fascination with this product that in very living memory was, you know, disparaged or mm-hmm. either wasn't very good or wasn't seen as something that was um, – you know, worth being uh, studied or appreciated or used as a way to show that you like, that you have like class in your drinking. Yeah. No, it couldn't, it, um, they can't make it fast enough. You know, from the people who obsess over Pappy to one of my personal favorites was that I discovered like about 15 years ago now was um, uh, Elijah Craig. Their 18 mm-hmm. was beautiful. It cost $40 a bottle, and it was like my everyday drink in bourbon, like 2006, 2007. Now, yeah, a, not anymore. Now <laughs> that bottle's like so expensive. I'm like, oh my. And you, they ran out for a while. They didn't even have it. Now, that being yeah. said, there is so much whiskey still being made. And if you are like one of those people who have to have Pappy or who have to have this, I suggest you go out and you find other things. Personally, I believe, I mean, this is just from my personal experience, my personal palate, that bourbon has a terroir. There's something about it. When I blind taste a whole bunch of different bourbons, my personal favorites all tend to come from the Bardstown region of Kentucky. I don't know. There's just something Mm -hmm. about that area that I love, whether it's a Heaven Hill bourbon or a Willet bourbon. There's something about that area that I'm like, "Mm, yeah, I really like how this tastes. Now, mind you, there, mm-hmm. there's probably only about seven families that make bourbon in Kentucky. So there are lots of choices, and you could find your favorite, too. My advice to 
you people listening is that you just go out and explore and taste and it doesn't necessarily has to cost better for it to be a good bourbon. I blind tasted my dad on a whole bunch of really nice bourbons and he just picked the cheapest one blindly and was like, mm, yeah, this is the one I really like. You know, at first I was kind of horrified yeah. at my dad's palate and then I was like, no, man, if that's what he likes, that's what he likes and good for him. He chose the cheap one. Now he could buy handles of Benchmark. <laughs> No, benchmark's great though. Benchmark's well, fantastic, I, and I do like I like it, in, and I really like it in a in a cocktail. Yes, too. and yes, and that's true too. Like, try different whiskeys and different cocktails are just like as complex as sometimes gins can be. You know, um, so um, definitely experiment. And, and also, of all the spirits that are out there, it is I think whiskey is the easiest one to find in flights. Yes, um, and, and unlike scotch, which can get kind of pricey. It, even if you wanted to do some flights, mm-hmm. um, American whiskey doesn't necessarily have to be. And you can do you can mix it up. Like if you go to a bourbon, or sorry, if you go to a bourbon bar, an American whiskey bar, um, and even if you don't, even if you just go to your neighborhood bar and go, maybe when it's not super busy, like be, befriend the bartender mm-hmm. and see if they would be willing to um, do a pour. And you could do it across. Um, you could do, you know, Tennessee whiskey, Canadian whiskey, and like a bourbon, you know, or a rye or something. You could mix it up that way. You could do um, across, you know, Kentucky, or you could do different states in the United States. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's really, it, it would be fun to to do all of those yeah. and, and kind of see where your palate lands. Yeah, because, you know, and maybe you're, you'd be surprised, like your palate might land, might surprise you. Maybe you are a crown drinker. Maybe it's delicious. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Maybe so. Like, when in doubt, like, ask ask your bartender to, like, pour, pick out some, pour it, and then taste it without knowing what you're tasting. You might be surprised. At Sobu, I remember doing an, an American whiskey class, and we blind tasted a whole bunch of spirits. And at that time, a lot of American whiskey was kind of new and different, and they were taking some radical steps. So I threw in Jack Daniels in the mix as well, because technically I was like, well, this is a Tennessee whiskey. It's not a bourbon. Let's they filter it through maple charcoal. That's what makes a difference. That's the only reason why Jack Daniels and George Dickel are not bourbons and why they're Tennessee whiskey, by the way. They filter it through a maple charcoal. It's called the Lincoln County Process. And that is the only thing that is different in how they produce their juice. It was funny that Jack Daniels came up uh, as a favorite for a lot of people. And I said, well, of course, that makes sense. Jack Daniels has tons of experience. This is a, mm-hmm. a product that's been aged more. And everything else I threw in there was still kind of young and experimental. And, you know, your palate is used to uh, something a little bit more professional. It also might, might have been, it also might have been a little familiar. Yeah. I mean, we've all had it, yeah. you know, at some point. That's true. Um, I, what I was going to say is uh, the reason I know that Crown Royal is not my favorite is because I've definitely had it at some weddings. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, I I will have Crown Royal, and thank you. Yeah, uh, but um, I think I got I, it. I, I think know, I got I nostalgic. I didn't spit it out. No, no, no. I didn't go. No, never. Oh my gosh, never. <laughs> no, I went to a concert in um, here in Seattle, and I was so excited, and they had a very limited whiskey selection but i was very excited to choose crown and i was nostalgic for new orleans 
It's like, I'll oh. have some crown in honor of my New when Orleans. When I drink I crown, I think of New Orleans. That's <laughs> a sentence I didn't expect to hear from you. <laughs> you could tell I spent a lot more time serving it than actually drinking it in New Orleans. But yeah. I do I do miss yeah. I do miss my regulars and I miss I miss the clientele. Right. It's very it's very different here, you know, and I I love it. I it's fascinating. Oh, that's an interesting segue. Do you mind if I talk a little bit about what's different here in the whiskey that I've discovered? Yeah, yeah. Um, so speaking of what's different here in Seattle, now that I'm a tri-coastal, I've lived in New York and New Orleans, and now Seattle and the West Coast is very different. And speaking of thinking of this country, not in terms of land mass, but in far of, as waterways, I'm a now a Pacific coaster. So I actually, I feel like I have more in common in some ways with cities like uh, Tokyo or Sydney and the coast of California and Vancouver than I do cities like New York. Uh, it's very far away. So mm-hmm. I was very surprised um, to find a beautiful um, budding whiskey scene here. We live in a beautiful bread basket here in Washington State, and um, there's a valley, the Skagit Valley, that is very a bread basket for the area. There's potatoes there and all sorts of grains and hops for beer. And, of course, we have a wonderful local beer scene. And what does it take to make good whiskey? You have to make good beer. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm not surprised to find some absolute delicious whiskey here. And they're actually working on getting a whole new category legally declared in the U.S. called um, American Single Malt. So this is a single malted whiskey, very much like like scotch, except um, they're not peated necessarily, although... One of my local here in Seattle, Westland, they do do a a peated whiskey every year. They kind of feature it and and have it kind of uh, seasonally available, which is kind of awesome. Um, Mm -hmm. So this category also includes um, malt whiskey is primarily malted barley. And if you wanted to make a malted barley whiskey, you you often had to get the malt from Scotland because there's so many Scottish uh, distilleries there that are doing the maltings process. But now Mm -hmm. we actually have a malting plant they built here in Washington. So they're malting Washington grain. They're malting it here. This is is kind of really, really cool. And it tastes amazing. And besides... um, Westland, we also have one right down the road from me called Copperworks. And Copperworks, they started out as brewers first. So they do make, you could actually taste the beer that they make the whiskey out of. It's not unpalatable. It was delicious. I had a whole glass of it. And I got to fill my own barrel too and sign my name on it. So in a few years, I'm going to go back and have a, a couple bottles of uh, whiskey I helped fill in a barrel. That would be lovely. Yeah, you guys will have to come out and uh, celebrate. We'll tap that barrel. Um, We're making a big list, I feel like, of all the things that Elizabeth will be drinking with Abigail. Oh, my goodness. When she goes to Seattle. Yes, yes. We're going to have a a good – there's a good Allocate a lot of – a lot of days. Oh yeah, to str- to spread out all that alcohol. Yeah, the guys at uh, the distillery said they'd love to have me come up to this maltings plant too and check it out there. So I think that'd be a nice field trip for us when you get here to go up to this beautiful valley and check out a maltings plant. That sounds lovely. Yeah, field trip, field trip. So speaking of field trips, wherever you are, you should take a field trip to your local distillery. I was going to say we should have. I just went to uh, a national park. And they give children little worksheets 
you know, so that when you go along, you have to like see it's like, oh, there's an alligator or <laughs> there's a heron, you know, like you fill it in. And I like the idea of all of the things that could be filled in on the um, Maltine distillery tour <laughs> worksheet. I think that'd and be that maybe idea. things would get a little like blurry by the end. <laughs> But yeah, I agree with you. Go take a field trip to your distillery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, support and, your local uh, distillery. Local. And yeah, and try some new whiskey. American whiskey is is um, a really fast growing category, and it's not just bourbon, not just rye, and there's so much more in between, and so much more happening, and people are really experimenting. So we're really in a golden age of uh, of new American whiskey. Do you have a whiskey cocktail you want to share? Well, I, you know what, I'm just gonna um, share a really kind of classic old fashioned recipe. Whenever you are tasting, you want to taste a whiskey, and you want to kind of do a cocktail, and not just sip it neat. Just do the most bare bones, basic, old fashioned, which means like a bar spoon or less of a little simple syrup or demerara syrup, uh, like one dash of orange bitters uh-huh. and Angostura bitters. Really keep it light. And then just like one twist. When you smell the whiskey, ask yourself, what's speaking to me, a lemon or an orange twist? And then just do that one and skip the cherry. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm, put the cherries mm-hmm. on the side for snacking. But I want you to yes. really kind of taste that whiskey with this very light, kind of beautiful, old-fashioned. Let the whiskey speak to you through it. And the bitters and the sugar will just enhance those properties. And you'll really be able to enjoy the whiskey. And I would encourage you, while you are doing that, to think about how whiskey settled America. That the barrel followed us from the Atlantic coast all the way through Western Kentucky or Western Pennsylvania and Kentucky, settling the middle and all of those, um, Calis, oh shit, Conestoga, Calistoga, what's that wagon called? Conestoga? <laughs> those covered wagons? Wait, hold on. Yeah, covered wagons. Oh, Calistoga. I, just, I don't know. I didn't know they had a name. I just Calistoga. Calistoga. Yeah, that's a, Wait, is that what? No, that's a place in California. Yes. Wagon. <laughs> Conestoga. That's it. It's a particular Scott style. Somebody figured out, like, this is how you make this wagon, and then everybody bought it. So each of those wagons had a barrel of whiskey in them mm-hmm. because it didn't spoil, and it was a disinfectant. And so if you have the snake bite or something that needs antiseptic, you could wash it out with the whiskey. Mm-hmm. So it was medicine yes. for real. For real. And it gets you all the way to California and it kept the miners warm while they were panning for gold. And um, it was the thing you could count on. And as you sip your American whiskey, or if you're in Canada and you're drinking your Canadian whiskey... Um, you can raise it to um, to your country mm-hmm. and be. It's a thing as we uh, as we all struggle with things that in our country that we may not be really happy with right now, and that's that's all around. Yes. It doesn't matter what side you're on. No, nope, everyone is unhappy true. about something. Yep. But this is something that you can be proud of. Yes, and you can be happy, and you can. And I I could say. Uh, completely honestly, that when I drink American whiskey, I am proud to be American. I am proud to be American as well when I sip on that liquid gold that is American whiskey. 
<laughs> and on that note, Ooh, um, I have a correction. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Okay. My mother, my mother was listening, and and she she pointed out that I mentioned that Seattle was partially settled because of the California Gold Rush. Of course, I misspoke. I did, of course, mean the Alaskan Gold Rush because they passed through here to go to Alaska. So sorry, right. Mom. I misspoke. <laughs> okay. Right. I love a correction that, but, but it's in a place where people will actually hear it as opposed to like on page eight down at the bottom with a small asterisk. Um, yeah. So sorry, Seattle. And also sorry, uh, sorry, Alaska, Yukon, Gold Rush. Yes. Uh, so if you ha- are a fan of the Drink and Learn podcast, you should tell everybody however you like to tell people stuff in person, through the social medias. Um, you can rate us on iTunes and if there's anywhere else you can rate us, I haven't found it, but you could, if you know about it, you should rate us and then tell me where that is. (laughs) And, um, even if you're listening to us while you're commuting on some sort of train and it makes you smile, you should just turn to the person next to you and say, I'm listening to the Drink and Learn podcast. It's really awesome. And- it also makes me really want to go get a glass of whiskey right now. Would you like to join me in the dining car? Oh, yes. That's on, that That would be great. Uh, drink and Learn, bringing people together, yes. making friends, and who knows what else. Um, if you would like to ask us a question, you can send it to cheers at drinkandlearn.com. You can also direct message me. Um, at um, on Drink and Learn, I'm on Drink and Learn everywhere: Twitter, Instagram. But if you d- uh, DM me on Instagram, uh, you could send a question that way, or you can also send questions to Abigail or tell her that you know you're going to come to her bar or something like that. Yes, I've had so many great listeners come into my bar since I opened uh, Ben Paris here in Seattle, and it's been such a delight. Right now, it's so busy because we just opened, and I'm working Friday and Saturday nights. So I'm really hoping to get some quieter nights in so I could start doing some cocktail classes and, and spend some quality time with my guests again because um, cause that's my favorite part. But Abigail, if somebody actually wanted to contact oh, you. Yes, you, you don't have to come all the way to Seattle. You could find me on Instagram at my name at Abigail Gullo, G-U-L-L-O, or Twitter at NYC Baby. And so until the next time, enjoy some American whiskey and cheers, y'all. Cheers.